Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brady and Diana for lending unto Christ and his church the gifts that he has given them, playing with excellence and a pure heart. It is such a blessing to us. Hey, praise as well as we rejoice with James and Ruthie Jones. They have given birth to an adorable 8-pound, 15-ounce bouncing baby boy. All are doing well. We thank the Lord for blessing godly parents with new life, especially giving us boys. Give us new boys born into godly homes. Beloved, we know that we have a crisis of godly men in our nation right now. As new wave feminism and intersectionality have put men under assault, many have shrunk back from their courage to lead. Many have abdicated their roles in the face of loud voices. A few things are more unpopular, but more needed than for strong, gentle men to lead with enough tenderness to hold a newborn and enough strength to fight a wolf. So we we pray blessings over James and Ruthie's new son. We pray for health and speedy recovery for family, as I'm sure we have a line of people waiting to coo on a new baby. Well, yet there is a season for all. This week we also hosted a funeral here at HHBC as well for a former member, a homecoming for this dear brother. Such a contrast this week as our church family saw new life and it saw the passing of life. And in both, we see the faithfulness of God to his people. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we came upon what could only be described as a, well, a very baffling scene. A scene that makes the outside observer scratch their head in wonder or even blush at the audacity. We witnessed a high display of hubris and pride on the part of two disciples, James and John aptly named the sons of thunder, meaning sons of anger and agitation. They were blustery men, ready to call down fire and bring a fight, which really makes our consideration of this group of 12 men really quite something, doesn't it? From a personality standpoint, of course, we have James and John, two hotheads, two sons of anger. We have Peter, who often speaks a bit too much, uninformed passion, should we say, who was impulsive, who didn't hesitate to draw a sword to cut off an ear. And don't forget in our mix we had Simon the Zealot as well. These zealots were revolutionaries. They were fighters. So with just those four, we know that a full one-third of the discipleship core were impulsive hotheads. And the other was a devil, in Jesus' words. So just consider this group. Now throw in a reformed tax collector into the mix, and we have quite the bunch, don't we? Of course, we only need to dive into the pages of Acts that see that these men, empowered by the Holy Spirit, would turn the world upside down, wouldn't they? They would shake it to its very core. But today, as they say, is not that day. Last week, James and John approached Jesus with a most audacious request bringing their mother with them, Salome, who was in fact Mary's sister, hoping to secure from Jesus a special family privilege, hoping to tug on Jesus' familial heartstrings. 
Now one could almost forgive James and John for even thinking that they could make such an unthinkable request. They had in fact been quite privileged up to this point. They were in the core inner group. Peter, James, and John were privy to all the matters behind the curtain. They were in the club. Only exacerbating this sense of entitlement recently, of course, was their witnessing of what? The transfiguration on the mount. They truly were brought into the inner sanctum, as it were. They beheld the master transfigured before them. And if that wasn't enough, Moses and Elijah were on the guest list as well. Talk about rolling in high circles. So they began to think quite highly of themselves and what they were capable of. Unfortunately, Paul had not yet written Romans 12, 3. I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. However, as James and John approached the master with this request, that they might be granted the position of sitting at his right hand and his left hand in his glory, they had certainly been taught better. James and John had both sat on the grassy hill as Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, and it should have rung in their ears as Jesus proclaimed, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who come to Christ as a beggar, spiritually destitute, spiritually bankrupt. Nothing of myself I bring, simply to the cross I cling, is the song and the disposition of the heart. The psalmist declares the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But James and John have become untethered from the moorings they had been taught. They believed since they had witnessed Jesus being transfigured before them that they could hang with the big boys. They believed that they had witnessed on the mountain what they had witnessed was the full glory of God. And we were privy to that. And we could handle that. Why shouldn't we ask to sit at your right hand and your left hand? Of course, we know that wasn't the case at all. The transfiguration was a foretaste of the glory to come. It was a peak behind the veil. No man can see God in his fully divine state and live. But pride deludes. Pride deceives the bearer of it. It blinds and it destroys The disciples had no idea what they were asking for, indeed what they were demanding of Jesus. We are reminded that biblical humility is not to think less of oneself, but it is thinking of yourself less. You could have a terrible self-image. You could think you're the lowest person of the low, the worst self-esteem possible, and that is still rooted in pride because self is still at the center of it. Whether we think high of ourselves or low of ourselves, it's equally pride when self is at the center. Of course, we marveled at Jesus' response to James and John last week. He would have been justified to excoriate them for their presumption and for their pride. But he is the gentle shepherd. And he simply asked them, what is their desire? knowing the audacity already of what they would ask for. Yet even after that, Jesus tells them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Of course, we know what cup Jesus spoke of. 
The very cup that Jesus asked in the Garden of Gethsemane would be taken from him. The cup that would be filled to the brim with the wrath of God against sin, bearing the weight of sin, purchasing our pardon with his blood. This was the cup, this was the chalice that Jesus would put to his lips and would drink. It's a rhetorical question to the disciples as we learned. Because only divinity can withstand the wrath of divinity. Only God can suffer the wrath of God and survive to receive the reward of his suffering. Yet James and John do not understand the depth of what they are asking. In their pride and in their ignorance, they believe that they can walk the path Jesus would walk. That they could drink the cup that he would drink. Desiring status and position that belong only to whom God has prepared it for. And you know what, James and John? Maybe it is you. Maybe one of you. But consider Jesus' words in Luke 14. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. Should we even desire to be in a place of honor if it is not our sovereign Lord who has placed us there? Part of the surrendered life of the Christian is desiring to be where God wants you to be. And yet James and John came to promote themselves. They came seeking to be great in the kingdom of God, not knowing what that means, not realizing what that looks like. Do we still not understand? The greatest in the kingdom of God, beloved, are names we will never know. We presume we would know the names of those who will be at his right hand and his left hand seat. For those for whom it is prepared, and some we may, but most... We've never heard of them. People who are nobodies and nothings in the world are great in the kingdom of heaven. And it's a lesson the disciples have still to learn. It's a lesson we still have to learn. It's a lesson that needs to be reinforced as our flesh desires recognition and praise and status and position. It's the world that fights and strives for these things. Yet we live at peace. It is God who promotes, and it is God who puts down. He will place us as he sees fit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Today in our text, as any good teacher does, Jesus uses this audacious and, and prideful request as an opportunity to not only train his twelve, but to make one of the clearest statements in the gospel about why he came. We have in our text today a summary statement, if you will, of the entire Gospel of Mark. And we will see today that James and John's prideful request had, in fact, been heard by the other disciples. And we will find that that, has, that will be a revealer of hearts. It exposed the others by God's mercy. We have so many wonderful waters to swim in with the teaching of our Lord this morning. So with that, let's look at our text, beloved. Mark 10, 41 through 45. Mark 10, 41 through 45. And hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. And calling them to himself, 
Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord, as so many texts we approach, we are pricked to the heart. These are hard sayings, Lord, who can know it? Lord, as our flesh and our pride war against these truths, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would subdue those desires, that we might hear your word. Holy Spirit, as we ask every week, we ask that you would wield the bow of the word and that it would find its perfect mark. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, around the year 1863, as the war between the states was raging, the civil war that was tearing our nation apart was at a head, a delegation from the Confederate government in Richmond went to stay at the home of General Robert E. Lee. And they had come to discuss all matters of military and government with the venerated general. Now, general Lee is often considered one of the finest military minds in our nation's history. He came from a long line of military tradition all the way back to Light Horse Harry Lee of Revolutionary War fame. He was so sought after that even President Lincoln, before the war, asked Lee if he would lead the federal army against his native Virginia, which of course he declined. Lee is the only person to this day to ever graduate from West Point with zero demerits. He was a remarkable man by all standards. Now back at his home that night, as was custom, the men from the delegation left their boots outside their doors presumably for the slaves to shine and have them returned in the morning. As the wee hours of the morning crept in, Lee's wife, a direct descendant of the Washingtons, by the way, rolled over in bed to notice her beloved husband was not at her side. So curiously, she arose to inquire. And as she walked out there in the common area of the home, by the faint light of a candle sat the silhouette of her husband, the general, shining the shoes of the men staying at his home. Of course, Robert E. Lee had no slaves. He abhorred the institution of slavery as an evil that should die. But instead of correcting or shaming the men who left their boots out, he humbly took and he shined those boots. And no doubt the next morning, these men would have never thought that the finest military mind our nation had known to this point gave up precious sleep to shine the very shoes they now walked in. Lee knew what it was to serve with humility. It drove his very being. He claimed no rank or status, no power or prestige for himself when it came to serve. To be great is to be humble. If you want to be first, you will be the slave. A job seen fit only for a slave, like shining the boots, sits just fine with any man who would follow Christ. He is only doing what his Savior did before him. 
And today this lesson will again be taught this group of men. A reminder, as we have said many times before, that in the kingdom of God, down is up and up is down. Our parents always told us when we were younger that we needed to grow up, when in fact we need to grow down if we seek to be great in the kingdom. God's economy is not the world's. The first are the last, and the last are the first, and the slave is the greatest. We have much to see, so let's dive into our first verse this morning, beloved. Verse 41. Verse 41. And hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Now here we almost have a, really a measure of humor on the surface of this reaction, don't we? Almost like a thief getting mad that another thief stole something before they could. Somehow they hear about James and John's request and they get indignant. This means they get angry. Now, is this a righteous anger? Was this a holy anger? Was this an anger driven at the sin of pride by James and John? Not at all. The other ten were simply beat to the punch. And not only that, but James and John were trying to call in family favors to do so. Now, it was all well and good if the master chose to bestow privilege on Peter, James, and John. That was his call. But now, it's James and John who are seeking out the position and the rank and the status. But of course, the ten wanted it for themselves. Who do James and John think they are? We see such treasures buried in this text here. It simply says that they felt these things. It doesn't say that they verbalized them. This could have simply been a monologue of the heart, an inner attitude. Of course, Jesus sees the heart. He knows the heart. Isn't it a curious saying when people appeal to their heart to justify themselves? Well, Jesus knows my heart. We know that's the problem. It's desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. But here in our text, it says they began feeling this. They began. And this is so very instructive for us because we, we may be tempted to think that this word began applies more to the disciples since it's talking about the, the process of their feelings, but it's not. Mark tells us their, their impetus of beginning because he wants to show us how fast Jesus slaps down this thinking. It's less about what the men began to feel and more about the speed with which Jesus is going to correct this errant thinking. Jesus did not let this heart attitude fester. As soon as it began, Jesus was on it. And this is nothing new. Jesus has been squashing this jealousy and this competitiveness of the disciples from the beginning, hasn't he? It's constant. And I would like to say that after this little powwow today, that this lesson is finally learned. But if we fast forward all the way to the Last Supper, Luke records, there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them would be regarded as the greatest. Oh, do we need a savior? Oh, we are sheep. We really need things drummed into us. How dependent are we upon the unending mercy of our Lord? Daily mercy. Mercy meaning he does not give us what we deserve. And of course, grace. Granting to us the riches of salvation at the great expense of the cross. I am continually amazed at the long-suffering of Jesus with his disciples. And thus, I am continually grateful that he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. 
We need the same forbearance. We, I know we're all tempted to think that had it been us with Jesus, had we walked and talked with him by his side for three years, we would have gotten it. No, you wouldn't have. You wouldn't have. We were saved by grace. We are kept by grace. And it will be grace that leads us home. So our disciples have anger brewing in their hearts. Whether verbalized or not, Jesus sees it, he perceives it, and takes immediate action to correct this poisonous thinking, this disposition of the heart that would breed discontentment and disunity, coveting and desiring, idolizing one's position to the master instead of worshiping the master himself. And what does Jesus now do? Verse 42. Verse 42. And calling them to himself. I'll pause there for a moment. A few things to observe. Our verb calling here is what's given in what's known as the middle voice. Now you care about that because that tells us of the immediacy with which Jesus goes after this attitude. Isn't it possible the ten thought they were righteous in their anger? We often think our sinful anger is righteous anger, don't we? That it's a justifiable, acceptable anger? Newsflash, it rarely is. 99 times out of 100, the anger we experience in our daily life is not a righteous anger. The holy anger, the righteous anger that scripture describes is a rare thing. Very simply, righteous anger is being angry at what angers God. That's how you can know. Most of the time, our anger is in response to ourselves or our kingdom being infringed upon. Someone got between my desire and me. So here comes my anger. Anger is the sinful love child that is birthed from desire. That's the kind we see here. That's why scripture is chalked full of counsel and command concerning how we as believers are to wrangle with such an emotion. We're taught to be careful in our anger. That we do not sin in our anger. Don't catch a tiger by the tail. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Paul exhorts the Ephesians. Jesus sees his disciples in danger here. Unrighteous anger is poison for the soul. It rots your bones. It wreaks havoc and division. So Jesus convenes a meeting. Lesson time. And how does Jesus begin? He begins the way any good teacher does. Speak their language. Start with something they know. Look back to our text. Watch the master work. Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Now, Jesus often uses irony in his discourse, especially if he's rebuking or correcting someone. And here Jesus zeroes in on an incredible irony. First off, who are the ones who are always complaining about living under Roman occupation? Who are the ones who are so desperate to be free of it? Who wants, keeps wanting me as Messiah to deliver you from that oppression? And this sinful desire you have to rule and be in a position of power has been a learned trait. That's a learned trait. But you desire to become the very thing you want to throw off. 
like the young boy who observes and experiences abuse as a young child themselves. Sometimes they grow up to be abusers. They have observed it. They have learned it. And here for the disciples, to be great means to have position. It means to be ambitious. It means to climb to the top. They have in their minds and in their hearts a worldly definition of what it means to be successful, what it means to be great. Yet Jesus points out the irony of it all. Those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. You desire to become that which you loathe. Not only is it ironic, but even more deadly is the drive that will put them there. And their great men exercise authority over them. I want you to notice something here, beloved. It is not the greatness or the status that is at issue. Jesus identifies them as rulers. He identifies them as great. But that's not what Jesus takes to task, is it? He takes to task that they lord it over them in how they exercise the authority. It is not greatness that is the problem. In fact, in our following verses, Jesus is going to tell us exactly how to be great in the kingdom. There are great men and women of God all throughout history. Greatness in itself is not the issue. It is first the drive of the person to obtain that worldly greatness that brings sin, and then what they do with it once they have it. Ambition for greatness, not not rooted and grounded in a biblical servanthood, is driven by what? What's the fuel? It's pride. It's self. Desire for riches. Desire for power. You fill in the blank. So it is first the fuel that drove the greatness of the Gentile rulers... And secondly, once they have that greatness, what do they do with it? They lord it over them. A top-down, domineering rule, strong over the weak. They exploit those beneath them. They tyrannize those under them. These cannot be great in the kingdom. It was a sinful heart that drove them to gain the power. And they remain that way once they have arrived. The Septuagint translates this as, they play the tyrant. The point being that at the center is self. It is self-promotion. Gaining and pursuing power to fill their own lust and desire. It was sin that fueled their rise, and it continues when they obtain that desire. Now, while the disciples would not classify their desire in such a way with it put in the most awful and ungenerous of lights, we know that it's true. They were agitated, were they not? They were angry. Well, there are only two types of anger. We know we have righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Which was theirs? It was an unrighteous anger. They all desired status and position, just as the Romans who lorded it over them. Now, there are some lessons in our life that need to be learned, relearned, and refined our entire life. The natural heart inclination to want power, to want position and prestige, came barreling in at us in Genesis 3 in the fall. Why does the fallen man want power? The root came right from the serpent's forked tongue. God knows that you will be like him. Ooh, I want that. Which is the heartbeat of it all. 
We either heap God replacements unto ourselves or we put ourselves on the very throne. Full stop. It was the very pride of Satan himself. He desired to be God. He thought he could overthrow God, effectively making himself God. Here we must consider the root of why we desire power, why we desire position. Having laid all that down, Jesus says a very important word here. Verse 43, verse 43, but, but, that's a word of contrast, isn't it? But takes what was said and flips it 180 degrees. It is not this way, Mary. It is not this way. You are different. You have been called out of this world. You are in the world, not of it. You are a new creation. You are a prize of my own possession. What drives the world does not drive you. Your affections are altered. Your values are overhauled. Having the mind of Christ, you think differently. There is no relationship between the greatness of the world and greatness in the kingdom of God. They are diametrically opposed. The fuel and ambition that drive the believer to greatness. And what you do once you have that greatness. They are water and oil to the world. They don't mix. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. You know, for us today, this concept does not sound strange to our ears, does it? This teaching is so common that even the world has latched onto it. How many secular companies now emphasize servant leadership, right? Things like that. One thing you'll notice in life is that the world loves the fruit of Christianity. They love to come pluck the fruit off of our tree and eat it. This servant leadership thing, companies found this really works. They love the fruit of Christianity. It's just the root that they hate. The world says, give me the fruit but keep your roots. You can go down the list of fruits of the Spirit, and the world wants them all on their terms. Love, we want love. Joy, we want joy. Peace, yes, yes. Give us peace, patience, kindness, goodness, yes. We want all of those things. Yes, we want love, but we don't want the God of Scripture who is love. They want joy, but they don't want the God of all joy. Yes, give us peace, just not the Prince of Peace. Give us patience, but not the patience of a forbearing God. Give us kindness, but not the kindness of God that leads one to repentance. Give us goodness, just not the one who is good. As they say, it is no use having the same words if we're using different dictionaries. They love our fruit, just keep the root. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. True greatness. Not greatness as the world gives. Not great, greatness that is driven by ambition or greed or a desire to heap unto yourself. Greatness in the kingdom comes first, we see, by being a servant. Now before we dive into this word servant, which we should be cued in on, we need to remind that what the disciples are wanting is not a wrong thing. What James and John desired in and of itself was commendable. That is not what Jesus is taking to task here. 
And I mention that twice because we can have a sense of false humility, can't we? We can confuse the command to be humble with the desire to be great in the kingdom. We need to get our categories right. Some may think it's prideful to want to be great in the kingdom, yet we don't see that in Scripture. Great men and women of God lived with expectation of this. Consider Paul after he had labored in the kingdom, after he had walked out being a servant. Indeed, we'll see in a moment a slave by Jesus' standards. Paul has been great in the kingdom. And what does Paul tell Timothy? I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. It's there. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. On that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It is not wrong to look to reward. It is not prideful to desire to be great in the kingdom. Jesus does not condemn their desire here. He says, if you want to be great, here's the path. Here's the path. And it doesn't look like the world. Your motivations are not theirs. What you do with the greatness once you have it does not look like the world. And we see this demonstrated so beautifully again by Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians. Paul has indeed become great in the kingdom, hasn't he? What does he do with it? Does he lord it over them as the Gentiles do? 1 Thessalonians 2. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Watch this. Even though, as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But, there's another but, we proved to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, watch this again. Here comes the command of Christ to be great in the kingdom. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Isn't that something? I'm an apostle. Great in the kingdom, Paul says. We could have demanded all sorts of things from the churches with that title. But we didn't. That's what the world does. You serve. You serve. And here our word for servant Jesus uses. If we, we want a sense of what the disciples are hearing and visualizing, we have to know how they use that word. And our word here is diakonos. It's where we get our word deacon from. It literally refers to those who waited on tables. That's what the disciples are picturing when Jesus says diakonos. We see it used in the wedding at Cana in John 2. His mother said to the diakonos, to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Verse 9, when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the diakonos, the servants who had drawn the water, knew you're not, the only, you're not the one being waited on. That's inconceivable. You're the waiter. You're the servant. Oh, but that's not all. Jesus ups the ante here. Watch this. 
Verse 44. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Well, many of you know that I tend to use the LSB translation for our messages. That's one not maybe familiar to some. And while there are many reasons why, here is a prime example. In many translations, we've seen a softening of language. Here, our word for slave is doulas. It means slave. It means you are bought and owned by another. You are not your own. It means just what it says, a slave. Now, sadly, due to cultural sensitivities, some committees thought that the word was too strong and it carried too many connotations. We can't use that word. So, so many translations rendered doulos, not as slave, but as servant. But that's not right. Diakonos is servant. Doulos is slave. The distinction is huge and it matters. We don't have time to do a deep dive into that, perhaps someday. But thankfully, the LSB fixed this poor trend in translation. Slave means what it says. And here Jesus uses just that word. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be doulos, slave of all. But why say them both? Why first servant, diakonos, and then slave, doulos? Why not just go straight for slave? Right off the bat, right? Why delineate both? A few reasons that we can glean. First off, when we look at servant, when we look at diakonos, dia meaning through, kanos meaning dust, meaning through dust, meaning you are moving around and you're going here and there doing your duties so much that you're kicking up dust as you serve. Vines defines the root idea as one who reaches out with diligence and persistence to render a service on behalf of others. A servant is diligent to be looking for opportunities to serve. It means usefulness and serviceability. The church needs to grasp hold of and rediscover their inner diakonos. It is a well-known phenomenon in churches that 10% of the people do 90% of the work. You cannot be great in the kingdom and not serve. If we come, if we soak up the preaching and never reach out beyond that, we are not diakonos, we are merely consumers of preaching. In fact, in the foyer area out here, one of our very diligent deacon has placed a huge list of ways that members and attenders can serve. Pick it up. Look it over. Pick something. Do you want to be great in the kingdom? You must serve. Take it up with the author. Pastor didn't say it. Yet as we said, Jesus says both servant and slave. Why both? Well, very simply, one presents the opportunity the other presents the obligation. To be a servant is to seek out the opportunity to serve. I mean, we are not free to just float around willy-nilly. Jesus says if we want to be great in the kingdom, not only will you seek out the opportunity to serve, but you have an obligation to serve. A slave is obligated. They forego their own rights in order to serve others for the sake of Christ. Look at our own definition given to us by doulos for slave. This is how we are to be. This is our relationship that fuels greatness in the kingdom. That we are to be, quote, an individual 
bound to another in servitude and conveys the idea of the slave's close and binding ties with his master. Belonging to him, obligated to and desiring to do his will and in a permanent relation of servitude. In some, the will of the doulos is consumed in the will of the master. A bondservant is one who is surrendered wholly to another's will and thus is devoted to another. He disregards his own interest. Well, that sure is not popular today. Servant and slave. Not as the Gentiles who lord it over you. We serve God by serving men. That's the heart of it. That's the fuel in the tank. Thus we see our call to servanthood, to slavehood. But like any child asks, why? Why? I've made this bold claim, now let me explain. This is like nothing they've ever heard, saints, these disciples. This is not how anyone has defined greatness to them. This is not how they have witnessed it, walked out in their synagogue. This is not the heart of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the opposite of this. They loved the recognition in the marketplace. They loved the pomp and circumstance. Greatness, even in the realm of religion, for our disciples looked no different than the world. They did the same way. They acted the same way. Did the Pharisees lord it over them? Did the religious leaders exercise harsh authority? <laughs> Absolutely. So more explanation is going to be due if we're to make sense of this, we need the why. And the answer comes in one of the greatest declarations in the Gospel of Mark. If any of you have been waiting through our year and a half in Mark so far for our one verse, the one statement, the one line that encapsulates the entire Gospel of Mark, we're about to see it. All the beauty of the Gospel of Mark given right here. Verse, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, even up here, the suffering servant. This is the summary statement of Mark's gospel. Even the Son of Man, God in human flesh, did not come to be served, but to serve. If I came in such a manner, is a servant greater than his master? I'm demonstrating for you what greatness is. I'm so submitted to the will of the Father as a servant and as a slave, bound in obedience, that I will give my life. And nowhere is that better illustrated than in Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. I could say there was hardly a theologian or commentator out there that did not gravitate to this verse in connection. It seems fitting to bring us to a close. Paul exhorts us in the epistle of joy, Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant 
and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Servant to all, slave to all, greatness in the kingdom modeled by our Lord, done in joyful obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our text this morning, this challenging text that wars against our flesh. Holy Spirit, as we consider the words that you have given us, we thank you for preserving this text. Lord, that we might know your love, that we might know that we have a Savior. Heavenly Father, we desire to be great. In your kingdom, Lord, not as the world sees greatness, but in your eyes, in your sight, Lord, as we live our life as before an audience of one, we pray that we might be pleasing in Jesus' mighty name.